Hello and welcome to Between the Mountains Adventure Podcast. Today's guest is Haley Gendron. So yeah, we'd, we'd been trekking for hours and then I was probing and probing and all of a sudden my probe went through the ice and then before I had the chance to even like think or do anything, my feet fell as well and I started swinging and falling, kind of free falling um, into just this like blue, dark <laughs> abyss. Hayley Gendron is a multidisciplined, quietly adventurous character who's also an advocate for indigenous and environmental rights. Without making a song and dance about it all, her experience sees her in the Peruvian and Ecuadorian rainforest working with animals, traveling and adventuring from Patagonia to Canada, and mountaineering and rock climbing, all while learning her native language, Ojibwe, which you can hear me try and pronounce the original name, the actual name, a bit later in the episode and have a bit of a laugh. While promoting indigenous rights, when she's not doing all of this, you can probably find her paddling in the bay around BC or hiking a nearby mountain. In this episode, we talk about the influence of adventure, purest canoe expeditions, and is portaging necessary, type 2 fun, wearing a hockey helmet for rock climbing, falling in love with landscapes, the Yosemite of the sea, indigenous rights and its relation to environmental protection, lessons learned from native languages, falling into a crevasse, the line of acceptable risk and so much more. So I really, really hope that you enjoy the episode. So let's dive straight into it. Hayley, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for coming along. How are you doing today? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, my pleasure. Honestly, uh, yeah, like like I said, when um, I reached out to you, uh, seeing following you on Instagram is just full of culture and adventure, which is precisely what ticks the box, I think. So yeah, thank you for coming along. I wanted to take it back right to the start briefly, if I could, uh, which in your case is apparently before you were born, uh, when your dad was about 14. Uh, he and his best friend went uh, and hitchhiked nearly 400 kilometers to Algonquin Park, which I think is how you say it. That is how you say it. <laughs> Algonquin. Yeah, the largest and oldest provincial park in Canada. How much of an influence has your dad had on your love for the outdoors? Wow, this, this is good research that you've done. He's uh, <laughs> My dad has been a huge influence. I mean, um, yeah, the trip that you're talking about, um, him and his best friend, when they were kind of just becoming teenagers, decided to go on a little adventure and they hitchhiked um, to Algonquin Park and which is like a, a canoeist mecca. It's a, just this giant chain of lakes and beautiful land um, in, in Southern Ontario. And um, so they, they went, they had never been on a canoe trip really before and um, rented a canoe and just went out um, for, I think for about a week or so. And, um, you know, we all kind of have those um, our own stories from when we first started getting into the outdoors and, you know, you don't know what gear to bring, you don't, <laughs> you, you learn the hard way. So they, they went full fledged into, into a long trip that way. But 
since then they made it an annual thing um, and they would always go on canoe trips together um, and they both hunt together too and do do different things in the outdoors and and definitely his love um, for canoeing and for hiking and, and spending time outdoors um, and my mom's too were rubbed off on me as, as soon as <laughs> as soon as I was born they always had me hiking and in a canoe and um, yeah definitely definitely had a huge impact amazing I, I hear as well that you've been repaying the canoe lessons from your dad with rock climbing lessons back to him as well what, <laughs> what kind of adventures do you take together these days yeah we did a couple of years ago it was so much fun actually I was home in Ontario I usually I live in BC now um, across the country I'm like 4,000 kilometers away from home so when we do get together we like to um, to make our time worthwhile for sure so um, yeah a couple of years ago I took him we went on a little canoe trip on our own and then um, and then I wanted to take him rock climbing um, because he'd never been and that's something that I had learned while on the west coast and so I took him and my brother it was really funny he had um, we didn't have a climbing helmet for him we recognized <laughs> so he uh, he used a, a hockey helmet um, and very stereotypical Canadian fashion felt like <laughs> have you seen Happy Gilmore I don't know yeah. but anyways he yeah he was wearing a hockey helmet and and rock climbing for the first time and it, it was it was awesome I took him to just like a local crag that's just about 15 minutes down the road from uh our hometown so um that was really special for me for sure to be able to share that and then we just went um in September he came to visit me out here and we did a six-day canoe trip um, called the Palaforest Canoe Route, um, which is up kind of along the Sunshine Coast where I live and um, through another chain of lakes. So to be able to do that in the mountains, like the thing that we love about Ontario, but in, in the mountains out here was also super special. So we'll see what the next adventure brings. I wanted to just touch on, um, firstly, just Ontario. Uh, you've described canoe culture as unique and dominant over in Ontario and that you missed it when you came to British Columbia or oh, British Columbia sorry that's very ironically British of me um do you, <laughs> how do the two places compare in regards to adventure and is there anything that you wish uh you'd also brought over from Ontario to BC I think the so they're both amazing in their own right um BC is definitely a lot more like in your face grand um big mountains um the ocean you know ocean like ocean culture in general and um and high mountain peaks and the rockies and um there's a lot of just really big nature and in ontario it's more subtle um there's again canoe culture is huge there beautiful um chains of lakes tons of water tons of fresh water and there is a lot of climbing too. It's not as well known um, for its rock climbing, but there's there's a lot there that's in ice climbing too. But what I love about Ontario is the, and I, I think about it a lot with my parents and how we're spoiled here in BC where everything is so big and grand and, and beautiful. And so it's easy to, to see beauty. But in Ontario, um, what I love is... Um, people I think more so have the ability to really pay attention to the little details. You can go on a walk in, in a forest where the trees aren't um, like, you know, the width of a car um, and, uh, and still, still find like the amazing beauty in the small details and get to know the, the native species really well. And um, you know, my parents go when they walk their dogs every day through the forest and they, they pick up on these little things every time I'm there and I'm always blown away. Like, oh man. 
I wish I still had that and that uh, I, I do to an extent, but um, but not like they do. So I think that's a that's a really good comparison. And also just going back to that canoe trip that you did with uh, with your dad, uh, you mentioned the uh, the one and a half kilometer portage route, which just had type two fun written all over it. Um, do you think there is a necessity to include portage in order to have a true and pure canoe expedition? <laughs> I do. I think there's a. I think there's a bit of a um, debate there for sure. And but I'm I'm kind of a purist. Um, I think that yeah, you got to So portaging for anyone who doesn't know in the states, they call it portaging. Um, <laughs> you take um, is when you lift the canoe and you're you're carrying it over your head um, from from one lake to another. So if you need to get from one body of water to the next, you toss it on your head and, and you walk over and depending on your canoe um, that could be either a really awful experience or, or not so bad. Um, it's funny that that um, portage in that was in Bon Echo Provincial Park in, in Ontario but um, we thought that one was long at one and a half kilometers which again like if you're just walking or like a like a hiking one and a half k it sounds like nothing. Um, yeah when you have a 60 70 pound canoe on your head it's uh, yeah it's a bit a bit different. It's funny out here in the canoe trip that we just did um, in BC and through the mountains, my my dad was struggling because he's not used to incline at all. Ontario is very flat. And I think we had like, I think the longest was around five kilometers or something like that. Um, And just up and down and up and down because BC isn't built the same as Ontario and the, the bodies of water, there's a lot more land and yeah, like mountains between, between them. Um, so it's not like Ontario where they're all kind of connected or there's little tributaries connecting all the waterways. Here, it's kind of like, you have to go pretty far to get from lake to lake. Um, so the, yeah, the, the portage just nearly killed my dad. I got a, I, there was a lot of colorful language, I think on <laughs> some of them, but all in good fun. And he, you know, in true type two fashion afterwards, he, he he'll never shut up about it now he loves it but <laughs> it's usually type two fun you're talking about when you're having type one fun so yeah, yeah it <laughs> makes a good conversation <laughs> exactly yeah um so you, you said quote never have i had a town and its inhabitants impact me so heavily and quickly as francois newfoundland so what was it about this place that captivated you Oh my gosh, this is great. I love these questions. Um, thank you. So Francois, Francois is this little town, um, kind of remote, um, was a fishing village off of the kind of south central coast of Newfoundland. Um, so Canada's easternmost province. I was there, um, my boyfriend and I were there, I don't know, two or three years ago. Um, we were working with the tourism board. And so we didn't know about this town before at all. It was actually the tourism board that introduced us to the place. And, you know, it was a mission to get there, um, super remote. We had to take, you know, like two, two planes and then a, like a four hour drive. And then a, like a, like, I can't remember how long the ferry was. It was several hours too. Um, it's boat or helicopter access only in this little town. It's kind of like in the back of a fjord and it's gorgeous. It's just kind of like these big, um, big cliffs and uh, kind of like plateau and, and swamplands and everything, bogs like um, above it, but 
it's just this little tiny, there's just, there's the population right now is around like 60 people, I think around 60, 65 people at its, in its heyday, um, it got as big as around 200, um, just still very small, <laughs> but it's, uh, it's amazing. You know, we got, uh, we got off the ferry and into this little town, there's no cars. So in the summertime, people get around either on foot or um, on ATV, like a four wheeler. And then in the winter, people snowmobile around. Um, but we were greeted by just super lovely people. Um, the owners of the only kind of like place to stay in town, which is a little B&B. And we had wanted before, because this, like, this was a tourism job, and they had initially asked us what we wanted to do in Newfoundland. And there's this massive wall, this massive rock face called the blow me down wall um, that it looks like El Capitan, like in Yosemite, but just out of the ocean. It's really, really beautiful and um, scarcely climbed. And um, we wanted to go and check it out. And, um, and initially the tourism board, they said, oh, you know what, like, we'd love to be able to accommodate this, but um, it's not really what we're wanting to wanting to highlight. And it's, it's far, like it's pretty remote. Um, so we're like, okay. And then we, we, as soon as we got off the ferry, we happened to mention it to these, the owners of this B&B as we we're kind of like walking with our stuff to the house. And uh, the man, um, his name is George. This is, might get confusing because there's a lot of Georges, but he is, um, we, we talked to him about, we mentioned the blow me down wall and he's like, oh, you, you just want to see the blow me down wall. Um, and we're like, yeah. And he's like, oh, George Fudge will take you. And he just tells us that this man named George Fudge will take us to the blow me down wall. And we're like, oh, like, okay. Um, where's, where's George Fudge? And he's like, oh, he's out there. And we, we look out onto the ocean and there's this man in a, in a little boat. And <laughs> I guess that's, that's George Fudge. And uh, so we ended up kind of like scrapping our plans a little bit. Um, and they, I mean, the tourism board was like, we, it was, free time so we were able to do it but um George Fudge sure enough like comes picks us up and um we ask and we say like hey do you want to take us to the Bloomington wall and he's like oh yeah so um we go in and he we're on this like little boat um and he took us like so funny too before he takes us to this beautiful wall he's like oh I'm gonna stop in at my cottage um, like his, like his little vacation home. We're like, okay, <laughs> this is interesting. So he takes us to like the next fjord over, um, where there's like two houses there and his wife is there making lunch. And, um, so he, he brought us there, um, to, and that's his house where he gets away from all of the hustle and bustle of, um, <laughs> <laughs> grand old Francois. <laughs> so we thought it was so funny that, yeah, that he needed a vacation home, but, um, yeah, just everyone, we, we met probably at least half of the town um, in our stay there. We were only there for a few days and they were just the, the friendliest, happiest people, so proud of where they come from. Yeah, I think everybody should should pay it a visit if they can. Um, yeah, Francois. It's called, it's like spelt Francois. Like, yeah, my bad. <laughs> yeah, no, but it, uh, it's, it's how I would have said it too. But the, yeah, but the Newfoundlanders, they call it Francois. But yeah, Newfoundland, um, is is such a beautiful place and i highly recommend anybody go for the people too like the people make it amazing and the landscapes are gorgeous see icebergs we went snorkeling with humpback whales it's one of the only places in the world where you could do that um and yeah just the whole the whole experience in newfoundland is amazing we try to go back as as often as possible 
you are a huge advocate for indigenous rights and climate change and animal rehabilitation. What is your drive behind doing so? I think just recognizing, you know, like um, myself and I'm sure most people on your podcast in general, like we spend a lot of time outdoors and a lot of time in nature and you can't help but want to protect the places that you that you visit when you see um, such beauty. But with the with indigenous rights, I just find that you can't have environmental rights without indigenous rights um, or vice versa. <clears throat> they're they're so interrelated and intersecting that that, yeah, you, you can't, I don't think that you can have a healthy environment without healthy Indigenous populations. For me personally, on, on my dad's side of our family, um, we are Algonquin um, from the Shibata Badjawan First Nation. And yeah, something that I've learned more and more about over the past several years. So that has been a major, like, I learned a lot about um, just the injustice faced by Indigenous people in Canada. Um, and starting with my own family and learning about how, so our nation, Shibata Vajawan First Nation is non-status Algonquin. Um, and in Canada, um, there's a delineation between um, Indian status. So um, judging by the Indian Act, which is um, a very dated and controversial um, <laughs> piece of like legal framework um, governing indigenous peoples in Canada, um, it has been harmful because it is the, it is what basically the Canadian government uses to say either you're indigenous or you're not indigenous. Um, <clears throat> so my whole life, you know, I grew up thinking that and knowing, knowing that we're Algonquin, but knowing that we're non-status. So, but that was never really explained to me what it meant. Um, so for me, learning the term non-status, I just assumed oh, it just means like we're not legitimate for, for some reason, or we're not, we're not legitimately in, indigenous enough to be recognized, or I don't know, I, I never give it like too deep of thought um, until I, I found this book that was specifically about, it's like a woman's PhD thesis, um, specifically about non-status Algonquins of Ontario. Um, so it names a bunch of my family members by name. And I basically learned that in our case, non-status doesn't mean that we're not indigenous. It just means that at the time of, um, you know, settlers were first kind of getting to Canada, um, Europeans were first getting here and then Canada became Canada um, in, the, in the mid to late 1800s. There were, um, a lot of the land was just being cleared. There was initial, initially like somewhat okay relations between like the English and the French and indigenous people of the area. But then slowly, you know, land started being cordoned off, cleared, and um, just given to settlers, um, which made it really difficult for the indigenous people of the area to still have their their own lifestyles and um, and still hunt and harvest um, for subsistence. And so, basically, the Canadian government started making deals with with indigenous groups, giving them really measly chunks of land, saying, "Here, if you stay on here, we'll give you these like." benefits um which <laughs> were not at all beneficial um obviously so it, so some some groups of people did take the deal essentially and, and take this bit of land because they thought well you know um i don't know if we'll get anything at all or or any rights if we don't say yes um so some people created reserves um and lived um you know signed treaties and um and technically ceded some territory um 
in exchange for some rights. Um, really, yeah, awful. A lot of the time, like, again, like language barriers and stuff, they didn't know what they were signing. Um, but, but in the case of my ancestors, um, they said, you know what? No, like, like, screw you. If we live on this land, we're not going to be able to hunt um, and harvest in the lands that we normally do, which means we won't be able to survive. Um, at that time, they were semi-nomadic. So in the wintertime, they'd go off. Families would individually go off and hunt. And then in the summertime, they'd all come back to the same area um, and would, would plant food and harvest food and everything and be together. Um, so they couldn't do that if they lived on reserve. So basically my ancestors refused to, um, to cede any territory or to give up their rights in exchange for Indian status. So, um, so they, they remained non-status. Um, and it's kind of sad because they weren't able for too long to be able to maintain their subsistence lifestyle and everything because the land continued to be cleared, um, which meant their food sources started dwindling, habitat loss was happening. And they eventually had to slowly kind of um, just kind of adapt to the communities that started um, building up around their land and um, yeah, kind of mixing with, with settler populations um, for years and years until you come up to now, but it's, um, and a lot of the time they also had to, there was still a lot of racism, there was discrimination. They weren't allowed to um, to hunt without a license. So technically like nobody in Canada, like Newfoundland, Newfound Canada at the time <clears throat> was allowed to hunt without a license, but you had to pay for a license. So all the indigenous people who didn't have money because they weren't part of that system and weren't hired to work at all either, um, they, they were just kind of, screwed essentially because they if they were caught hunting without a license then they would be thrown in jail or charged or you know be indebted to the state um with money that they never had or were never given in the first place so there's like so many injustices you know um and then you get later on where you know residential school systems started coming in and, and the 60s scoop and all these all these kind of awful things that happened to these populations so basically I started learning about all of this and and then um, in relation to my own family's history um, and realizing that you know what like a lot of the reason why I didn't grow up heavily in the culture um, as much as I could have um, was because my my grandparents um, my grandma and my great-grandma would have to hide the fact that they're um, they're indigenous in order to just be able to get by and avoid discrimination and so yeah there's still there's still some cultural things that um are here and exist. And there's a ton of people doing really amazing work to revive our cultures. We could probably do another whole podcast on that, I think. Oh yeah, absolutely. Staying on staying on that note, and you've shown me up with your pronunciations, um, so, <laughs> but, but we're gonna go in for it. So I really loved your post on Instagram about learning a Shinobamoan. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's pretty good. That's pretty close. How do we say it? Anishinaabemowin. <laughs> Pretty close. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, think, I think I was way off. But <laughs> so could you tell us a bit more about what that language has taught you so far? Yeah. So I've been learning um, the past like about well, almost two years, I guess, I've been trying to learn Anishinaabemowin, which is um, Ojibwe is an easier way to say it. There's, um, it's also the Algonquin language. Like um, it's, it's the language of my ancestors and um 
and unfortunately a dying language, but there's so much work being done to, to keep it alive. It's been really important to me to learn it um, because I want to better understand, um, you know, with, with, with languages, when they start to disappear, it's also a way of knowing and a way of understanding the world around us that disappears. And I've always loved the Indigenous worldview. Um, like globally, a, lo a lot of Indigenous populations um, have similar worldviews just with different nuances, but essentially a worldview of um, the world being in a circle rather than hierarchical, like in, in triangular, there's, um, you know, we live, we live in a circle, there's, um, we're equals with all of the other living beings um, around us. And instead of having um, rights to a place, we have obligations to a place um, and to, to protect it. And it's lessons like this that exist within the language. Um, you know, I've learned things like in, in Ojibwe, there's, there's, no, um, there's no such thing as like it or like a, a general like being. It's you're learning about um, if you do something to a thing, like in English, like you would, you would say, you know, like if you're picking a flower, like I will pick it. Um, you, instead of saying like, I will pick her or, um, or it's not a who, it's not a, you know, it's not a being, it's just like a, a object. Um, and objects don't really exist in Ojibwe. So um, when you place value on everything um, in a different way, it totally shifts the way you think about the world. Um, and I find that super beautiful. There's also a lot of just knowledge in the words, for example, that come from the land. So like um, months, for example, like in the past, the indigenous people would just follow, follow the moon um, in moon cycles. So each month is named after, so it all, every month ends in the word Jesus, which means sun or moon. And it's preceded by a word that usually like will tell you something about what is naturally happening in that season that's significant to people or the greater world. So like, you know, like Michelle Muskies is like raspberry, like raspberry moon, like the season that raspberries are growing or like Mukwagizas, I think February is Mukwagizas, which is bear, like bear moon. So it's kind of like the month that maybe bears start to um, start to slowly wake up from their hibernation or, um, or used to, or what is March? I think March is, ZB. Oh, I can't remember the word, but it's, um, it means like sugar maple, um, sugar maple moon. So like when, when people would go out and harvest, uh, yeah, like sap and, and make wow. maple syrup and everything, you know, so you learn from learning the words, you learn a lot about the land and everything is named after knowledge. So when you, it's important everywhere in the world, you know, when you, when you start losing those languages, you're also losing a lot of really, really important knowledge, like both scientific and no. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I like that, that phrasing that you don't have rights to a land, you have obligations to a land. I think, um, I think, yeah, if more people had that attitude, then I think we'd be in a much better position than, than we currently are. Absolutely. That's, that's like, if, yeah, if I could teach anyone anything and, and, and you know, I, I actively think about it every day and I'm definitely nowhere near perfect. But when you're thinking about having a relationship to the place where you live um, or where you happen to be, um, you know, um, like in Ojibwe, people will say, um, which means um, like, I will tread gently, basically, like wherever, wherever you are, like you'll, you'll walk lightly and kind of recognize where you are and, um, and start to pick up on things about, um, you know, if you have a local trail, um, 
at what point do you start, um, you know, just as, like having the right and like, instead of just having the right and say, oh yeah, like I live here, this is where I go and can walk every day. At what point do you go and look at it a bit differently and say, oh, like, what can I do to make this place better? Like, um, is it even like maintaining the trails or maybe going and planting something to give back to, to, you know, it's a give and take. and. Yeah, just thinking about the world a bit differently, I think, for sure, would make us all in a better position for the future. I hope you're all enjoying the episode so far. I know at this point I was astounded with the knowledge and just Haley's views and depth of knowledge and the information on Indigenous rights. I'd love to hear from you all what you think of that part and the episode so far, btmtravelpod at gmail.com or get in touch as 99% of you do on social media as well. Instagram seems to be the popular one. Let me know what you think of Indigenous rights and its relationship to environmental rights, especially with Earth Day being the day that I edit this too. But we're going to take a bit of a different direction now, so I hope you enjoy the rest of the episode, and I'll shut up and let you listen. So taking a completely different uh, <laughs> angle now. Cool. So you have quite a following and have even featured in articles such as top 10 Instagram accounts that make me want to be a mountain girl, nine <laughs> Vancouver landscape photographers you need to know on Instagram, and meet the power couples of the outdoor industry. For someone who comes across as so genuine and down to earth, do you ever feel the pressure to post and keep up with the social media workload? Yeah, for sure. It's a, it's a kind of like a, a struggle. I like, I never, um, I don't love social media like, to be honest. Like it's, I do. I love the platform that I have and I love the ability to, um, to share important things and, and see important things that other people share. I think it's an incredible tool. Um, but personally, like I've, I don't like being on my phone a lot of the time. Um, I don't think you're alone there. <laughs> no, yeah. I feel thankful um, to, to be in a position that in order to, you know, to, because it's turned into work at this point, right? Like I, I have a lot of different brand partnerships or I could partner with organizations and, um, and help them spread the word about products that I genuinely love in exchange for money that helps me go and do the things that I love to do. So, um, but I like that when I go on, um, a trip and where I do like capture content, take photos and, and to post or whatever. That's not my goal. When I, when I go and do a trip, it's, it's to get out there and, and do the things that I love to do. Um, I don't know the way I see it is if, if all I have to do is take a couple photos and, um, and, um, be offline. Like I love that when you're in the back country, you're not on your phone, you're, <laughs> you're, you're offline, you're disconnected. So, um, if all I have to do is connect for, for a little while and, um, and, you know, post some photos of places that I'm excited about and ideas that I'm excited about, then I think it's pretty awesome. Um, but yeah, in terms of just like having to keep up and, and be on it, I'm pretty bad at it. Like if you look at like my, <laughs> if you look at my account, I'll, you know, I'll be like, Oh, whoops, I haven't posted in two months or like, um, and, uh, and then realize, Oh, I probably should post something and you know to get jobs and everything like you have to be somewhat relevant and and have to maintain something it can be a bit stressful there's always kind of like a, I, I talked to several friends who are in similar positions about this but you're um like kind of often put in a situation when you're when you have an audience on social media it, it's no longer you're no longer just posting stuff 
um, that you would post to just your close friends. And um, it becomes a lot more curated and it's kind of like this group of people who are like, here we are now entertain us. <laughs> like you're, you're there to, to also like, you're, you're wanting to give people um, something valuable and, um, and something that they'll want to see. Um, and that definitely takes away from like, if you go like digging deep, it's, it's, you know, you would see like a lot more um, cat photos and, um, you know, like photos of like my university textbooks and like di different things like that. Um, but yeah, definitely now it's a lot more curated. So sometimes there's a struggle between like, okay, how do I do this for the masses, but then still be genuine and still be myself? Yeah, it's an interesting conversation, but um, it's not, it's not so bad in the good scheme of things. When you were in Patagonia, you decided to take advantage of the unheard of long weather window coming up by trekking across the Southern Patagonian ice field, which is the largest ice mass in the world next to Antarctica and Greenland. How was that trip for you? <laughs> it was a, it was a great learning experience, that trip. It was incredible. Um, the the big thing that happened on that trip um was um i guess to get right into it i fell into a crevasse there it's a it was a going to be well it was a five-day trip um basically trekking on the ice field all in behind the the um the fitzroy massif so like the like a, a really iconic mountains in patagonia um and um, I was so excited to see it from another perspective. Um, yeah, we had we had an awesome weather window. So um, two of my friends and I, my friend Tasha and Demi, we decided to uh, to go for it. And yeah, the three of us were. It's it's an amazing amazing route because you're um, you're kind of scrambling and route finding through. Um, through really fun terrain and there's nobody else there um, in that region, which is a nice, uh, nice escape from um, some of the more popular trails down there that can get really busy. Um, and yeah, always like always kind of seeing fits in the background and new perspectives of this really iconic mountain. Anyways, we, we got up to, onto um, the ice field and at first um, all of the ice was, it was pretty late in the, their summer season. So the ice was all dry um, you could see crevasses super easily and avoid them, um, relatively easily. It's annoying, but easily enough <laughs> like you have to just sometimes walk far around them or have some big jumps over them. Um, but anyways, on, on the third day, like smack dab in the middle, like could not <laughs> be far, <laughs> farther from, um, you know, rescue or, um, like on either end of the trip. So like right in the middle, um, I had started leading us. We switched off leads, um, and in the afternoon and the terrain had started to change. So instead of it being all dry glacier, there was like a thick layer about of, I don't know. Yeah. About like 30 centimeters or something, um, over, over all of the ice. And it, it completely covered all of the snow bridges, all of like any, all of the crevasses. So you couldn't tell at all, um, where the crevasses were at that point. Like, it's just like the sea of white, um, no indentation, like no nothing. Um, and we had been, um, we'd been trekking on this glacier for hours at that point and, um, feeling pretty good. You know, you probe into the, into the crunchy snow, every step that you take, um, and to check for crevasses. 
so yeah, we'd, we'd been checking for hours and then I was probing and probing and all of a sudden my probe went through the ice. And then before I had the chance to even like think or do anything, my feet fell as well. And I started swinging and falling, kind of free falling um, into just this like blue, dark <laughs> abyss. Um, and, you know, it's kind of like slow motion um, when things like that happen. It kind of felt like slow motion. And I remember as I was falling, like kind of, quickly thinking like this isn't actually happening <laughs> like this like you know like I had taken the previous year like taking crevasse rescue training and um you know you, you you prepare for these things but you never like actually think they're gonna happen and if you do like you think that you'll just have a quick little fall and be able to pull yourself out pretty easily um but in our situation without knowing like we didn't realize that the the whole kind of um direction of travel of the glacier because the glaciers are flowing right um so this glacier was basically had not it, it had it was flowing in a certain direction the crevasses had were facing a certain direction at the beginning of our trek and as we were following them um but after we had been on this um just kind of white um abyss for quite a while it became a lot more difficult. We assumed that we were still traveling, like the crevasses were still traveling in the same direction because it felt like that is what it should have been. Um, but they weren't. So instead of me, because generally when you're when you're crossing a glacier, you are wanting to be perpendicular to the crevasses. So you're hopping over them. Um, they're usually very, very long and not very wide. So you could just kind of hop across or use snow bridges. But the way the orientation of the glacier had shifted. So we were actually walking unknowingly almost parallel to the crevasses. So when I fell and when I broke through the snow bridge, instead of just falling over the lip of a crevasse and just falling a little bit, I fell about half the, so we had about um, 15 meters of rope between us. Um, and I fell about half that. So I felt about seven meters deep. And, and instead of, yeah, instead of just falling a little bit, I basically swung, it's hard to explain like if just audio, but I kind of swung back towards, um, towards the team, if that makes sense. Yeah. So um, my friend Tash, who was in the middle of us, um, she did the right thing and she, she immediately self-arrested. Um, but because, yeah, because of the way the crevasse was and everything, basically my rope just like started tearing through the snow bridge, um, which kept me going farther and farther into the crevasse and deeper and towards them. They didn't know that they just saw me like, they just saw me disappear essentially. So it was like a frantic several minutes of me, like kind of coming to, I had like a, like a super heavy, like almost like half my weight, um, a pack on my back and basically came to hanging um, I had somehow kept my ice axe in my hand, which I'm still really proud of. Um, <laughs> I just must've like Kung Fu gripped it, but, and yeah, anyways, it was dark and confusing. And, um, I started, I like screamed for them to let them know. Cause I kind of realized I started looking around me and then realized kind of to my horror that what the situation was and the reason why I was so deep and the fact that we were kind of parallel to the crevasse, because then I realized like, okay, the girls are still up there. They very well could be on this crevasse also um and like just on a strong stronger part of the snow bridge so if because if they fell then we would all be dead essentially like we, we would have all fallen in and where we were um on the southern patagonian ice field there, earlier that year um that season was the first helicopter rescue like in that zone ever um so it's not a like it's not a thing that you could just call for help and they'll come it's pretty remote so the yeah the girls were above ground kind of 
confused and, and freaking out and they, but they had me on a rope, which is good. Um, and then me in the crevasse, um, I started communicating with them and just trying, but yelling it like I had to be like, Hey guys. And it was so muffled because I was pretty deep. And, and then their snow bridge was still covering the entire crevasse. So like the only light that I could see was coming from the hole that I had fallen in, which was like, you know, yeah, like about like seven to 10 meters, like away from me. Um, and otherwise it was pretty dark. Um, and I explained to them, we we're parallel to the crevasse, like make sure they probe around them so they know like where it is. <clears throat> and it turned out that they were just like centimeters basically, like I think like two feet, if that like away from, from the lip of the crevasse. So it was, it was like super close. But I realized also that um, the way the rope was um, hanging, it was still just hanging on a piece of the snow bridge um, and above my head. So essentially I was at first when I landed, I was just like dangling um, and then quickly got myself kind of like braced between kind of like chimneying like in inside the crevasse. I, I essentially had like my crampons like in the wall behind me and my backpack like pressed against it. And then my elbows like kind of like almost plank position like um, in front of me, like um, to keep myself up because there was this right above me where the rope was cutting in, there was this like massive, um, chunk of consolidated snow ice, like snow that's trying to be glacial ice. And, um, that came down to a point that the point was like right above my helmet. I knew that if, um, it looked like it could easily be dislodged. So if I had put my weight more on the rope, or if the girls had started pulling on the rope to try to just like pull, pull me out or whatever this thing could have easily come down and if it did come down I don't think I would have been able to survive that at all um because it must have like I don't know like so much heavy heavy snow and then it would have pulled the girls in too so I had to really explain to them like don't pull um but realizing that I wouldn't be able to be pulled out <laughs> was also a really scary thing um, so I had an awful like a ton of awful thoughts that went through my head but it was trying to stay calm and yeah, just try to like think of all of the systems that I had learned in the past couple of years. Like how, how can I get out of here? And like, to make a very long story short, I ended up taking ice screws, um, which I was so lucky to have because I had several different, like very accomplished mountaineers um, in town in El Chalten tell me like, as I was prepping for this trip, um, I was going around frantically. I didn't have enough ice screws. Like you should always at least have one on you per person um, when you're traveling on a glacier. And um, I think we only had two and I was like frantically trying to find another. Um, and so many people were like, oh, it's fine. Like you, <laughs> like, you won't need one. Like, and yeah, I'm so thankful that I, that I did push and did get it. Cause I ended up using that to like I couldn't ascend the rope or anything or else I would have been putting weight on the rope so um I basically ended up using an ice screw screwing it in as far away from me on the same wall that like my feet were on as I could and then I had a personal anchor system so I would attach myself to the ice screw and then just like slowly like step by step like wiggle my way towards the ice screw unscrew it so every time I unscrewed the ice screw, I was kind of at the mercy of like potentially falling again. And um, so that was, it was pretty scary. And then um, just kept on moving the ice screw farther, like closer towards the hole that I had fallen into. Um, and eventually after, after a few hours um, being like soaked, like I had like uh, the snow bridge and the snow and the ice all around me was just like melting me, well, not melting me, but freezing me <laughs> in the opposite, um, dripping water on me. 
So even I was like wearing all Gore-Tex and stuff, but it just got like totally soaked through. Um, my hair was soaking wet. Like, um, and then, yeah, I was able to finally, like, I had like, I had thought about like taking my pack off and ditching it. Um, because it was such a pain in the ass, like to have such a heavy pack, like squeezing through the crevasse and like that was getting soaked too, like adding a bunch of extra weight. So yeah, I had considered just like dropping it, but I, I had like my tent that two of us were staying in. I had like all of the rest of the food and like just a bunch of pretty essential. Like we could have probably barely survived with, (laughs) without that stuff. But anyways, I was able to finally get myself up and climb up to where I had fallen out, where then Demi, who was at the back of our team, like she came and yanked on me, like pulled, like just pulled me in and got me out. And, um, you know, we were all crying and laughing and <laughs> um that post adrenaline sitting in yeah yeah and then we had to we had to continue and get back so that was like a whole other whole other thing it was a lot scarier after um after that um you know did you choose to, to press on and finish it or did you turn around we turned around so yeah we thought you know what at that point but even that was scary because we realized that what we thought we knew we didn't (laughs) because like the way that the the direction of travel for the crevasses and everything so we didn't want to retrace our steps when we could have just happened to be lucky by taking those few steps like they may have been on snow bridges that weren't so secure but um we're just like you know it takes one extra step for those to break so so it was pretty scary like either way we felt pretty stuck um but we just thought like you know like team morale at that point like and with just like soaking soaking clothes and everything you know what like we we knew it would be a lot safer just to to go back the way that we came so yeah we can't it was like sunset almost like as as I was being pulled out of the the crevasse and stuff and I'll never forget like that like for like seeing the sun again and it was just getting out and realizing where I was again and like it was like so beautiful and and just like I've never been so thankful to be alive and it was, it was a wild experience, but I, I like to think that, um, I mean, I'm thankful every day that it worked out the way that it did, but I like to think that if it hadn't happened, like, I, like, I think it prevented something worse from happening in the future, because I think if we had just like <clears throat> successfully done it, um, easily, then I would have ha- maybe gone into future like expeditions and future trips and objectives, like a bit, um, a bit less conscientious and, um, in, really concerned with safety so yeah it was just like a good you know reminder that these things actually do happen (laughs) um and yeah and they don't care how much you want to complete no no (laughs) yeah no no (laughs) mother nature pachamama does not (laughs) does not care (laughs) so yeah definitely good lessons moving to a lighter note um but staying in the same region you did a trip from patagonia to panama and you said that you left a piece of yourself in each each <laughs> place you stopped. Which place really captured your heart the most? Oh, that was, yeah, that was the trip in 2014. Um, that was like my first major, like long-term backpacking trip. And I had taken, I had taken half a year off from school, um, from university to go and do that. And yeah, it was amazing. We you know, it was cool. I was reading, um, like throughout that trip, um, there's a book called open veins of Latin America. Um, really beautiful. Eduardo Galliano. It's a really beautiful book. Um, kind of just like 
noting the history and conflict and trials and tribulations of, of different countries and zones in Latin America. So I was kind of trying to read the appropriate parts and the appropriate places. And so that was pretty cool. But um, I, I think Bolivia of, so we did like, yeah, in Patagonia, like Chile and Argentina and Bolivia and Peru, Ecuador, Colombia and Panama. Um, and, but I think Bolivia was awesome. It was at the time, like I hadn't done a ton of traveling before then besides just around Canada. So it was kind of the biggest culture shock, um, of the area. You know, you go, you fly into Chile and it's pretty, uh, like it's pretty westernized and modern and there's the borders and, you know, there's a bunch of security at the border and everything. And then you drive, like we drove, we like kind of hitched a ride in a Jeep from in, through the Atacama desert into Bolivia, from Chile into Bolivia. And uh, there, <laughs> the border is just kind of this like building made of like four bricks and like a little like arm of like, you know, like a little barrier um, that you could raise and, it, like with no fences around it or anything <laughs> like it's it's just like and it's just desert so like you can drive wherever you want it was just like the least secure border I've ever seen in my life and <laughs> um and but same thing like you know we were talking about Newfoundland and, or Tanzania like all these other places like the people um make it pretty great and the landscapes the people yeah it was just a really really cool place um the fact that it was like yeah, heavy indigenous population. Um, they had had their first indigenous um, leader at that time. And just, yeah, it was it was a cool place to be for that reason. Um, kind of like the pride and in indigeneity. And yeah, it, Bolivia was really cool. I went back last year. I did go back to Bolivia to climb Nevado Sahama, which is its its highest peak, which was really, really cool too. To, it, was, it was nice to get back down there. And yeah, but all of Latin America is, is amazing. I love it. I love the warmth of the culture and beautiful places everywhere. Yeah, it's awesome. You've said that you're comfortable being uncomfortable. So from rock climbing to backcountry camping to mountaineering, how do you decide which risks are necessary for growth? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, I think like, I mean, the crevasse experience and everything that we just talked about was kind of changed. Um changed my thoughts on this but um I'm like what I love about climbing and, and mountaineering is that you're always looking for redundancies and you're always looking to mitigate risks even though you're doing something um that op like often has objective hazards and inherent risks you're always looking for ways to make it as safe as possible and being really mindful of that so whether it's um you know having like another um like reinforced anchors or um, yeah, just redundancies in, in safety. Um, I personally love that. I'm not an adrenaline junkie. Um, I like, I don't love going super fast. Like I don't, I'm not a skier. Um, and so I find like, I like, I like the sports that are a little bit slower and intentional. Yeah. in in doing so you're able to really think about the risks that you're willing to take, but in terms of like pushing farther and farther, like, just yeah just always weighing like I think objective hazards are a big one like um are you know um what is the avalanche risk like what, what is there a lot of rock fall in this area what's the quality of what's the quality of rock um do you have um are you able to communicate with the outside world and you when you're getting into something like even just getting into the backcountry like 
when I moved from Ontario, I was used to spending some time, but you're in Southern Ontario, especially you're never too far from, from civilization. It's still tons of things can go wrong, but in the mountains, it's a, it's a whole different world. And um, so slow, like you, yeah, you, I feel like just like a slow push, you know, never get yourself into something that you are unsure if you'll be able to get yourself out of like and if you're going climbing or something like that you know make sure you know systems that where you can self-rescue or yeah different means of making sure that you can you can find your way out and you have enough food or have (laughs) ways to survive so you had an uh an amazing outdoors career so far so last question before we wrap up in everything you've done what is one moment that you would love to relive? Ooh. Oh man, all of them. Um, I've <laughs> it's, okay. Um, so I think that boils down to like conditions because you could go and see a, a million beautiful places, but um, weather conditions always change. So I know a couple of years ago, my partner and I were kind of on, like on the like remote um, end of the Grand Canyon um in Arizona on Hopi Hopi land and and like Navajo and Hopi territory and we were kind of just kind of like driving around and exploring and um it was snowing it was in the winter time and it happened to be snowing and we were just looking on kind of google maps but there's not really many roads in the area or anything we're kind of like off um not off-roading but there were just small little country roads and everything and um we ended up yeah, coming across kind of accidentally, actually, like the the rim of the Grand Canyon um, in a zone where it's not like the South Rim where it's super developed and everything. It's pretty undeveloped. And so we went for a little walk and it's just like it was cloudy and stormy out and snowing. And the the it just it looked like the world just ended. Um, you know, it looks like flat earthers knew what they were talking about. And that was just like the <laughs> like the end of the earth, like um just dropped off to a giant cliff. And um, you know, these like amazing shapes of like clouds and fog were coming out of the bottom of the canyon, along with these like cool spires and red rocks and I like I can't even explain how how beautiful it was like we thought we had died like we we were confused like questioning reality and and that was that was pretty incredible there ended up being we saw wild horses <laughs> there's like it felt like a dream like there was wild horses running like and with their like their manes just you know flashing and um and just really cool light like sunshine kind of like peeking through all these crazy clouds and yeah that was like those kind of conditions and like any like inversions um, when you're up up high in the mountains and you get those, yeah, those beautiful inversions that make you feel like you're in heaven. It's uh, yeah, pretty, pretty amazing. But yeah, that's a hard question. <laughs> so just some wrap up ones then you uh, you're multidisciplined from uh, backpacking, trekking, kayaking, canoeing, rock climbing, mountaineering. If you could only pick one for an entire year, which would it be? Mm. At this point right now, I think I would pick um, rock climbing just because that's where I want to improve the most. Um, that's where I'd like to get a lot stronger. Um, and, and it takes discipline and a lot of climbing to, to get a lot better. So, um, so right now I would say climbing, but that could, that could change for sure. That's hard. They're all great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Next year, I'll only canoe. <laughs> And then last question is, where can we keep up to date with all of your adventures? 
Um, mainly just on Instagram. So um, Instagram at Hey Um Some people don't know. They think they're like, what? Hey, but it's H-A-Y and then O-U-I. O-U-I as in yes in French. Hey, we. Yeah, that's that's the best spot. Brilliant. Perfect. Well, listen, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. If you enjoyed that episode, I would love for you to share it with some friends. Follow on whatever platform you're listening so that you don't miss a future episode. And talking about episodes, you might really enjoy our episode with Ian Finch where we talk about wild places and culture. Our episode with Emily Scott where we're chatting about pursuing happiness and adventure. Or even last week's episode with Luke Mel, just a life of Alaskan adventure. Adventure seems to be a theme there. Thank you so much to Haley for coming on to the episode. It was such a pleasure to chat and just explore further into her experience and views and everything. Let me know what you thought of the episode, btmtravelpod at gmail.com, all the social media links, and be sure to give Haley a follow and check her out on Instagram too. But with no further ado, I hope you have a wonderful week and I will talk to you in the next episode.